Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1 by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 7, Round the World on a Man of War, Continued. Malta and the Suez Canal, Part 1. Approaching Malta, we must not in silence pass Calypso's Isle. Warburton describes it, in his delightful work on the East, a classic on the Mediterranean, as a little paradise with all the beauties of a continent in miniature. Little mountains with craggy summits, little valleys with cascades and rivers, lawny meadows and dark woods, trim gardens and tangled vineyards, all within a circuit of five or six miles one or two uninhabited little islands that seem to have strayed from the continent and lost their way dot the sea between the pleasant penal settlement and gozo which is also a claimant for the doubtful honour of calypso's isle narrow straits separate it from the rock the inhabited quarry called malta of which valeda is the port the capital is a cross between a spanish and an eastern town most of its streets are flights of steps although the climate is delightful it is extremely warm, and there is usually a glare of heat about the place, owing to its rocky nature and limited amount of tree shade. All Malta, writes Talak, seems to be light yellow. Light yellow rocks, light yellow fortifications, light yellow stone walls, light yellow flat-topped houses, light yellow palaces, light yellow roads and streets. Stones and stone walls are the chief and conspicuous objects in the Maltese landscape, and for good reason for the very limited soil is propped up and kept in bounds by them on the hills with the scanty depth of earth the vegetation between the said stone walls is wonderful the green bushy carob and prickly cactus are to be seen but in the immediate neighbourhood of malta few trees only an occasional and solitary palm over all the bright blue sky around the deep blue sea you must not say anything to a maltese against it with him it is flor del mondo the flower of the world the poorest natives live in capital stone houses many of them with facades and fronts which would be considered ornamental in an english town the terraced roofs make up to its cooped inhabitants the space lost by building there are five or six hundred promenadable roofs in the city talek says that the island generally is the abode of industry and contentment Expenses are high, except as regards the purchase of fruits, including the famed blood, mandolin, sometimes called quite as correctly mandarin oranges, and Japan medlars, and marsala wine from Sicily. The natives live simply, as a rule, but the officers and foreign residents commonly do not. And it is true here, as Ford says of the military gentlemen at Gibraltar, that their faces often look somewhat redder than their jackets in consequence as in india many unwisely adopt the high living of their class in a climate where a cool and temperate diet is indispensable the four great characteristics of malta are soldiers priests goats and bells the latter not being confined to the necks of the goats but jangling at all hours from the many church towers the goats pervade everywhere there is scarcely any cow's milk to be obtained in malta they may often be seen with sheep as in the patriarchal days of yore following their owners in accordance with the pastoral illusions of the bible what nature commenced in valeda art has finished it has a land-locked harbour 
really several running into each other, surrounded by high fortified walls above which rise houses and other fortifications above them. There are galleries in the rock following the Gibraltar precedent and batteries bristling with guns, barracks, magazines, large docks, foundry, lathe rooms, and a bakery for the use of the United Service. To every visitor the gorgeous church of San Giovanni, with its vaulted roof of gilded arabesque, its crimson hangings and carved pulpits, is a great object of interest. Its floor resembles one grand escuchon, a mosaic of knightly tombs recalling days when Malta was a harbor of saintly refuge and princely hospitality for crusaders and pilgrims of the cross. An inner chapel is guarded by massive silver rails, saved from the French by the cunning of a priest who, on their approach, painted them wood-color, and their real nature was never suspected. But amid all the splendor of the venerable pile, its proudest possession today is a bunch of old rusty keys, the keys of Rhodes, the keys of the Knights of St. John. What history is not locked up with those keys? There is hardly a country in Europe, Asia, or Northern Africa, the history of which has not been more or less entangled with that of these Knights of the Cross, who, driven by their conquering crescent from Jerusalem, took refuge successively in Cyprus, Rhodes, Candia, Messina, and finally Malta. The island had an important place in history and commerce long ere that period. The Phoenicians held it seven hundred years, the Greeks a century and a half. The Romans retained it for as long a period as the Phoenicians, and, after being ravaged by Goths and Vandals, it was for three and a half centuries an appanage of the crown of Byzantium. Next came the Arabs, who were succeeded by the Normans, and soon after it had become a German possession, Charles V presented it to the homeless knights. In the middle of the eleventh century, some merchants of the then-flourishing commercial city of Amalfi obtained permission to erect three hostelries or hospitals in the holy city, for the relief of poor and invalided pilgrims. On the taking of Jerusalem by the Crusaders, the position and prospects of the hospitals of St. John became greatly improved. The organization became a recognized religious order, vowing poverty, obedience, and chastity. Its members were distinguished by a white cross of four double points worn on a black robe, of the form commonly to be met in the Maltese filigree jewelry of today, often to be noted in our West End and other shops. Branch hospitals spread all over Europe with the same admirable objects, and the order received constant acquisitions of property. Under the guidance of Raymond Dupuy, military service was added to the other vows, and the monks became the White Cross Knights. Henceforth, each seat of the order became a military garrison in addition to a hospice, and each knight held himself in readiness to aid with his arms his distressed brethren against the infidel. Slowly but surely, the crescent overshadowed the cross. The holy city had to be evacuated. The pious knights, after wandering first to Cyprus, settled quietly in Rhodes, where for two centuries they maintained a sturdy resistance against the Turks. At the first siege, in 1480, a handful of the former resisted 70,000 of the latter. The bombardment was so terrific that it is stated to have been heard a hundred miles off, and for this extraordinary defense, Peter d'Abusson, Grand Master, was made a cardinal by the Pope. At the second siege, Lyle Adam, with 600 knights of St. John and 4,500 troops, resisted and long repelled a force of 200,000 infidels. But the odds were too great against him, and after a brave but hopeless defense, which won admiration even from the enemy, Lyle Adam capitulated. After personal visits to the Pope and to the courts of Madrid, Paris, and London, the then almost valueless Rock of Malta was bestowed on the knights in 1530. 
Its noble harbors and deep and sheltered inlets were then as now, but there was only one little town called Burgo. Valletta as yet was not. In London, Lyle Adam lodged at the provincial hostelry of the order, St. John's Clerkenwell, still a house of entertainment, though of a very different kind. Henry VIII received him with apparent cordiality, and shortly afterwards confiscated all the English possessions of the knights. This was but a trifle among their troubles, for in 1565 they were again besieged in Malta. Their military knowledge, and especially that of their leader, the great Lavalette, had enabled them to already strongly fortify the place. Lavalette had five hundred knights and nine thousand soldiers, while the Turks had thirty thousand fighting men, conveyed thither in two hundred galleys, and were afterwards reinforced by the Algerine corsair, Drugo, and his men. A desperate resistance was made. Two thousand Turks were killed in a single day. The latter took the fortress of St. Elmo with the loss of Drugo, just before the terror of the Mediterranean who was killed by a splinter of rock knocked off by a cannonball in its flight. The garrison was at length reduced to sixty men, who attended their devotions in the chapel for the last time. Many of these were fearfully wounded, but even then the old spirit asserted itself, and they desired to be carried to the ramparts in chairs to lay down their lives in obedience to the vows of their order. Next day, few of that devoted sixty were alive, a very small number escaping by swimming. The attempts on the other forts, St. Michael and St. Angelo, were foiled. Into the eastern harbor, now the Grand, Mustafa ordered the dead bodies of the Christian knights and soldiers to be cast. They were spread out on boards in the form of a cross, and floated by the tide across to the besieged with Lavalette, where they were sorrowfully taken up and interred. In exasperated retaliation, Lavalette fired the heads of the Turkish slain back at their former companions a horrible episode of a fearful struggle. St. Elmo alone cost the lives of 8,000 Turks, 150 Knights of St. John, and 1,300 of their men. After many false promises of assistance and months of terrible suspense and suffering, an auxiliary force arrived from Sicily, and the Turks retired. Out of the 9,500 soldiers and knights who were originally with Lavalette, only 500 were alive at the termination of the Great Siege. This memorable defense was the last of the special exploits of the White Cross Knights, and they rested on their laurels, the order becoming wealthy, luxurious, and not a little demoralized. When the French Revolution broke out in 1789, the confiscation of their property in France naturally followed, for they had been helping Louis XVI with their revenues just previously. Nine years later, Napoleon managed, by skillful intrigues, to obtain quiet possession of Malta. But he could not keep it, for after two years of blockade it was won by Great Britain and she has held it ever since. At the Congress of Vienna in 1814, our possession was formally ratified. We hold it on as good a title as we do Gibraltar, by rights acknowledged by the signing of the peace treaty. The supposed scene of St. Paul's shipwreck is constantly visited, and although some have doubted whether the Melita of St. Luke is not the island of the same name in the Adriatic, tradition and probability point to Malta. At St. Paul's Bay, there is a small chapel over the cave, with a statue of the Apostle in marble, with the viper in his hands. Colonel Shaw tells us that the priest who shows the cave recommended him to take a piece of the stone as a specific against shipwreck, saying, Take away as much as you please, you will not diminish the cave. Some of the priests aver that there is a miraculous renovation, and that it cannot diminish, and when they tell you that under one of the Maltese churches the great apostle did penance in a cell for three months, 
it looks still more as though they are drawing on their imagination. The great catacombs at Sita Vecchia, Malta, were constructed by the natives as places of refuge from the Turks. They consist of whole streets with houses and sleeping places. They were later used for tombs. There are other remains on the island of much greater antiquity. Hagiar Chem, the stones of veneration, date from Phoenician days. These include a temple resembling Stonehenge on a smaller scale, where there are seven statues with a grotesque rotundity of outline, the seven Phoenician Kabiri, deities, great and powerful ones. There are also seven divisions to the temple, which is mentioned by Herodotus and other ancient writers. To come back to our own time, in 1808 the following remarkable event occurred at Malta. One Froberg had raised a levy of Greeks for the British government by telling the individual members that they should all be corporals, generals, or what not. It was to be all officers, like some other regiments of which we have heard. The men soon found out the deceit, but drilled admirably until the brutality of the adjutant caused them to mutiny. Malta was at the time thinly garrisoned, and their particular fort had only one small detachment of troops and thirty artillerymen. The mutineers made the officer of artillery point his guns on the town. He, however, managed that the shots should fall harmlessly. Another officer escaped up a chimney, and the Greeks coming into the same house nearly suffocated him by lighting a large fire below. Troops arrived. The mutineers were secured, and a court-martial condemned thirty, half of whom were to be hanged and the rest shot. Only five could be hanged at a time. The first five were therefore suspended by the five who came next, and so on. Of the men who were to be shot, one ran away and got over a parapet, where he was afterwards shot. Another is thought to have escaped. Colonel Shaw tells the story of a soldier of the Sicilian regiment who had frequently deserted. He was condemned to be shot. A priest who visited him in prison left behind him, purposely, there can be little doubt, his iron crucifix. The soldier used it to scrape away the mortar and moved stone after stone until he got into an adjoining cell, where he found himself no better off as it was locked. The same process was repeated until he at last reached a cell of which the door was open, entered the passage, and climbed a wall, beneath which a sentry was posted. Fortunately for the prisoner, a regular Maltese shower was pouring down, and the guard remained in his box. The fugitive next reached a high gate, where it seemed he must be foiled. Not at all. He went back, got his blanket, cut it into strips, made a rope, and by its means climbed the gate dropped into a fosse from which he reached and swam across the harbour he lived concealed for some time among the natives but venturing one day into the town was recognized and captured the governor considered that after all this he deserved his life and changed his sentence to transportation before leaving malta which with its docks navy yard and splendid harbours fortifications batteries and magazines is such an important naval and military station we may briefly mention the revenue derived and expenditure incurred by the government in connection with it, as both are considerable. The revenue derived from imports of the usual nature, harbour dues, etc., is about £175,000. The military expenditure is about £366,000, which includes the expenses connected with the detachments of artillery and the Royal Maltese Fencibles, a native regiment of 600 to 700 men. The expenses of the Royal Navy would, of course, be incurred somewhere, if not in Malta, and have therefore nothing to do with the matter. Our next points of destination are Alexandria and Suez, both intimately identified with British interests. 
on our way we shall be passing through or near the same waters as did st paul when in the custody of the centurion julius one of augustus's band it was in a ship of alexandria that he was a passenger on that disastrous voyage at fair havens crete or candia we know that the apostle admonished them to stay for sailing was now dangerous but his advice was disregarded and when the south wind blew softly the master and owner of the vessel feared nothing but the flattering wind that late with promised aid from candia bay the unwilling ship betrayed no longer fawns beneath the fair disguise and not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called eurocladon before which the ship drave under bare poles we know that she had to be undergirded cables being passed under her hull to keep her from parting and lightened by throwing the freight overboard for fourteen days the ship was driven hither and thither till at length she was wrecked off melita sudden gales whirlwinds and typhoons are not uncommon in the mediterranean albeit soft winds and calm seas alternate with them on the twenty second may seventeen ninety eight nelson while in the gulf of genoa was assailed by a sudden storm which carried away all the vanguard's topmasts washed one man overboard killed an unfortunate middy and a seaman on board and wounded others this ship which acted her name at the nile only two months afterwards rolled and laboured so dreadfully and was in such distress that nelson himself declared the meanest frigate out of france would have been an unwelcome guest an officer relates that in the middle of the gulf of lions lord collingwood's vessel the ocean a roomy ninety-eight gun ship was struck by a sea in the middle of a gale that threw her on her beam ends so much so that the men on the royal sovereign called out the admiral's gone down she righted again however but was terribly disabled lord collingwood said afterwards that the heavy guns were suspended almost vertically and that he thought the top sides were actually parting from the lower frame of the ship admiral smythe in his important physical hydrographical and nautical work on the mediterranean relates that in eighteen twelve when on the rodney a new seventy-four gun ship she was so torn by the united violence of wind and wave that the admirals had to send her to england although sadly in need of ships he adds however that noble as was her appearance on the water she was one of that hastily built batch of men-of-war sarcastically termed the forty thieves many are the varieties of winds accompanied by special characteristics met in the mediterranean and indeed sudden squalls are common enough in all usually calm waters the writer well remembers such an incident in the beautiful bay of san francisco california he had with friends started in the morning from the gay city of frisco on a deep-sea fishing excursion the vessel was what is technically known as a plunger a strongly built two-masted boat with deck and cabins used in the bay and coast trade of the north pacific or for fishing purposes when the party consisting of five ladies four gentlemen the master and two men started in the morning there was scarcely a breath of wind or a ripple on the water and oars as large as those used on a barge were employed to propel the vessel the sea was bright and the bark rode well and at length the desired haven a sheltered nook with fine cliffs seaweed-covered rocks and deep clear water was reached and a dozen strong lines with heavy sinkers put out the sea was bountiful in a couple of hours enough fish were caught to furnish a capital lunch for all a camp was formed on the beach a large fire of driftwood lighted and sun-dry hampers unpacked from which the necks of bottles had protruded suspiciously it was an al fresco picnic by the seaside 
the sky was blue, the weather was delightful, and all went merry as a marriage bell. Later, while some wandered to a distance and bathed and swam, others clambered over the hills among the flowers and waving wild oats for which the country is celebrated. Then, as evening drew on, preparations were made for a return to the city, and all aboard was the signal, for the wind was freshening. All remained on deck, for there was an abundance of overcoats and rugs, and shortly the passing schooners and yachts could hear the strains of minstrelsy from a not altogether incompetent choir, several of the ladies on board being musically inclined. The sea gives rise to the thoughts of the sea. The reader may be sure that the Bay of Biscay, the Larboard Watch, the Minute Gun, and What Are the Wild Waves Sing came among a score of others. Meantime, the wind kept freshening, but all of the number being well accustomed to the sea heeded it not. Suddenly, in the midst of one of the gayest songs, a squall struck the vessel, and as she was carrying all sail, put her nearly on her beam ends. So violent was the shock that most things movable on deck, including the passengers, were thrown or slid to the lower side, many boxes and baskets going overboard. These would have been trifles, but alas, there was something sadder to relate. As one of the men was helping to take in sail, a great sea dashed over the vessel and threw him overboard, and for a few seconds only, his stalwart form was seen struggling in the waves. Ropes were thrown to, or rather towards him, an empty barrel and a coop pitched overboard, but it was hopeless. That cry is help where no help can come, for the white squall rides on the surging wave. And he disappeared in an ocean grave, amid the mingled foam and driving spray. All gaiety was quenched, and many a teardrop clouded eyes so bright before. The vessel, under one small sail only, the jib, drove on, and in half an hour broke out of obscurity and mist and was off the wharfs and lights of San Francisco in calm water. The same distance had occupied over four hours in the morning. In the Mediterranean, every wind has its special name. There is the searching north wind, the grip or mistral, said to be one of the scourges of gay Provence. La cour de Parlement, le Mistral et la Durance, sont les trois fléaux de la Provence. The north blast, a sudden wind, is called Boris, and hundreds of sailors have practically prayed with the song, Cease, rude Boreas. The northeast biting wind is the Grigale, while the southeast, often a violent wind, is the dreaded Sirocco, bad either on sea or shore. The last which need be mentioned here is the stifling southwest wind, the Siphant but now we have reached the Suez Canal. This gigantic work, so successfully completed by Monsieur Lesseps, forever solved the possibility of a work which up to that time had been so emphatically declared to be an impossibility. In effect, he is a conqueror. Impossible, said the first Napoleon. N'est pas français. And the motto is a good one for any man or any nation, although the author of the sentence found many things impossible, including that of which we speak. Monsieur de Lesseps has done more for peace than ever the disturber of Europe did with war. When Monsieur de Lesseps commenced with not the canal, but the grand conception thereof, he had pursued twenty-nine years of first-class diplomatic service. It would have been an honorable career for most people. He gave it up from punctilios of honor, lost, at least possibly, the opportunity of great political power. He was required to endorse that which he could not possibly endorse. Lesseps had lost his chance, said many. Let us see. The man who has conquered the usually unconquerable English prejudice would certainly surmount most troubles. 
he has only carried out the idea of Sesostris, Alexander, Caesar, Amro, the Arabian conqueror, Napoleon the Great, and Mehemet Ali. These are simply matters of history, but history in this case has only repeated itself in the failures, not in the successes. Lesseps has made the success, they were the failures. Let us review history amid which you may possibly find many truths. The truth alone, as far as it may be reached, appears in this work. The Peace Society ought to endorse Lesseps. As it stands, the Peace Party, well-intentioned people, ought to raise a statue to the man who has made it almost impossible for England to be involved in war, so far as the Great East is concerned, for many a century to come. After all, who is the conqueror? He who kills, or he who saves thousands? End of chapter 7, part 1